This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookbunk This, a live podcast where we talk about the latest titles and sizzling reads. I am To Wen Lee and I'm joined today by my co-host, Olivia Ho. Hello. Hi, Olivia. Today we're going to be talking about two translated works of fiction, The Plotters, a novel by Korean novelist Eun Soo Kim, and Broken Stars, an anthology of Chinese science fiction short stories translated by Ken Liu. So let's start by talking about The Plotters. This is the first time Korean novelist Kim has had any work of fiction translated into English. The plot centers around this young man called Ray Seng, who is an assassin. His job is essentially to carry out orders from above, and these orders come from people called the plotters, who basically decide who these assassins should kill and how they should kill them. So yes, Olivia, um, what did you find interesting about this novel? I really love this novel because one of the things I like to do is watch movies about assassins, and most of them are pretty terrible. I think recently I've just watched a stream of really terrible ones like Polar or Operation Endgame. <laughs> For some reason, I just really like the mystery and the thrill of an assassin movie. So I've been looking for this assassin movie that I really like for a long time and then to my great surprise I found it in a book. Not even a movie but a Korean translated book. So it's in, a, in what looks to be an alternate version of contemporary Seoul. Yes in contemporary Seoul and that was totally unexpected for me. So for me this book kind of moves like it is already a movie. I think it's just begging to be adapted for the screen and I think in fact already there have been some discussions about an adaptation. It's so cinematic. Yeah so like he said just now the main character is a young man called Rising who has been raised all his life in this library and the library is also the headquarters of national hit squad of assassins and is run by this man called Old Raccoon and he he relays the orders and he tells the assassins whom they should be killing what I like about it is that it's very deadpan. This is very... A lot of uh, assassin movies that I watch, they're very gonzo and violent and colourful. And there's just so much of everything. Whereas here, it's all kind of scaled back. You know, even when they're doing their killing, they talk about really mundane things like, oh my God, my daughter's tuition is so expensive. And how many more bodies do I need before I can afford to send her to college? <laughs> and the methods of killing, I think Kim Also is known for his research. Okay, I can't really say how well-researched it is because... I don't really know anything about killing people but it does give the impression that it is very there are these details that you wouldn't think about like the smell so at one point Rizin goes into his house and he's like somebody has been here because I can smell that they've been mm-hmm. here and therefore they're not a good assassin because a good assassin would never leave a smell and there's one scene as well where he steps into this barber shop there's mm-hmm. a chapter called The Barber and His Wife and yeah essentially um, what begins with a you know a normal routine procedure a haircut devolves into a fight between the two men and the way he describes the way the two men are locked in in the fight and combat it's just his attention to detail is so impressive and I almost feel like as you say that I was watching it unfold on the screen in front of me and I like these little um, not really flourishes but his attention to detail and the way he shifts from one perspective to another I mean we get a view we catch a tantalizing glimpse of his sharp razor blades and Reesing the main character says no it's okay I'm not going to have a shave today you know I mean goodness knows what would have happened if he did so it was little details like that which I found quite interesting and and you get chapters that open with lines like he cracked open his beer can so you know it's very these little small shifts in tone and, and you can almost hear it unfolding in front of you like a movie and Korean crime fiction is having a bit of a wave recently in translation of course a lot of attention went to Han Kang the writer of The Vegetarian when she won the Man Booker International Prize and then 
after that, that seems to have bled over into a lot of interest in Korean crime fiction, which in itself is not even a very big market in Korea. I think it's considered to be quite niche. It's not really considered to be literary, so to speak. But uh, I think Kim Eun-soo is uh, one of the authors that's been coming out recently, along with like Jong Yo Jong and a lot of other writers who have had interests expressed from the English market. And in fact, the story that I read of The Guardian was that when his publishing deal from Big International House came in, his publish- his agent couldn't contact him because he was on deep sea fishing trip for deep eight months. I don't even know what they fish. What do you deep- fish? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but apparently he was doing that for research. So I guess at some point we can expect a book about deep sea fishing. Yeah, so for eight months, he everyone in the world knew about his book deal except him. Does he know about it now? <laughs> yeah, I, I should think so. Yeah. <laughs> There's one scene I quite like, you know, before the final violent confrontation that Racing has with, with the other assassins. He goes into a restaurant and he orders a steak and he just does it in such a stylized way. He's so calm. He thinks about what he wants to order and then he admires his reflection in the mirror. I mean, you can almost hear the classical music playing in the background as he prepares to go off and really seriously injure someone. Yeah, so the book occurs at this time and Racing is having a bit of a, we would say midlife crisis, assuming assassins don't live very long. So he's spent all his life working for old raccoon, living in this library and the one time that he attempted to, you know, leave and have a normal life didn't really work out for him and he left at one point and tried to work in a factory and have a girlfriend. Yeah, so there's this girlfriend who tries to seduce him by washing his dirty underwear for him. Yes, because he just has like a hundred pieces of underwear he's he just never washed. Ones, yeah. What a man. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so he couldn't stay in that life so he leaves and he returns to the library and because old raccoon is getting on in years and there's a lot of people, a lot of contenders trying to sort of go up against him and so Racing gets in the middle of this competitive takeover I think yeah they're kind of jostling yeah, for powers, power almost. like corporate takeover just you yeah. know with assassins I think it's this trio of interesting women right you've got a cross-eyed librarian a convenience store woman and a, a woman who knits yeah she has a knitting so. shop <laughs> so, you know so as a person who likes to read books and knit, this obviously appealed so much to me what I liked about that is that you at the beginning you think you're going to go into this very like masculine sausage party kind of normal assassin movie but actually there are subversive elements to it like Mm. um, the introduction of the women which we won't talk too much about because it's a bit of a spoiler but yeah so it's not a straightforward kind of assassin story and Rezaim begins to question who actually are these plotters you know the people who control their movements and their targets so at one point he has a discussion with his friend Chu Chu is on the run because he has suddenly decided not to kill one of his targets this prostitute who got tangled up with some very important men and therefore became a target. So Chu decided he didn't want to kill this woman and he let her go and then he started killing... all the other plotters. Um, <laughs> so everyone, then Chu has this giant head on his head. Everyone's supposed to take him out. But he drops by Ray Singh's house and they have a chat. And Chu says, have you ever thought about who are these plotters? When you go further up and further up, who are they? And Ray Singh says, no, it's just an empty chair. There's no point. Even if you took a knife and you went to like the highest level, there would just be an empty chair. It's the system. So do you feel the, the author almost lapses into a kind of a series of metaphysical musings? It's one thing where he talks about God and how man was created in the likeness of God. God and pigs are the animals whose intestines most closely resemble humans. Therefore, pondering the shape of a pig's entrails might be the closest you get to looking at the intestines of God, almost. I don't know. I, I, obviously, it's quite, it's somewhat absurd, but I wonder if he was trying to reach for something beyond. Because racing, right, the Korean name racing, it corresponds to the Chinese words which mean laisheng or afterlife. Mm, yes. So it's this idea of, you know, to be continued or what happens afterwards. Yeah, so I feel like there are all these deeper concepts that are 
sort of hovering beneath the surface of the novel, but at the same time, they don't really push through. They um, don't overwhelm. Yeah, he's not like, story. you know, sort of launching into deep philosophical musings by, via assassins. There's also this joy that he finds simply in the fact that it's a book about assassins. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's interesting because just how you said that books written in this manner might not be seen as literary. I mean, I think it's quite interesting how he manages to concoct such a wonderfully... I mean, I know he doesn't like the word thriller, the author, but it's almost thriller-esque and he's able to produce such a fine work of fiction yet at the same time. I mean, it's entertaining and gripping, but at the same time, you can tell that it's very carefully woven and put together. Even the motif of crosses, you see the crosshead librarian, you see the crosshairs of racing's gun, you see the woman who is knitting, and I mean, all these little crosses, I mean, what is he plotting? I don't think we ever quite find out, but yeah. it's an interesting thing to think this, about. He is the ultimate plotter, is he not? If you go all the way up to the empty chair, that's him, the author. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, speaking of plotting, I think it's now a good time to segue into our next book, which is Broken Stars. Essentially, it offers a glimpse into this galaxy of Chinese science fiction. So, yes, Olivia, could you tell us a bit more about the concept behind Broken Stars and what one can expect? So, Broken Stars is an anthology that collects what are deemed to be some of the best of the science fiction writers in China. The Chinese science fiction also having another great moment right now, which started in, I think, 2015, when Liu sort of the, this huge figure in Chinese science fiction, won the Hugo Award for The Three-Body Problem, which was also translated by Ken Liu, who is the same translator for yeah. this book. And so after that, I think science fiction in China wasn't really, again, considered to be very literary. One of the writers, Fei Dao, he described it as being like a forgotten army that's just sort of left somewhere waiting to be activated. Mm. But Yeah, the thing is, Chinese science fiction has been around since the Qing dynasty. Yes, but it's not had that, I can't really say for previously, but I think in recent years, until recently, it didn't have that kind of literary regard you would mm. award to more literary genres. I mean, now you have academic conferences centred around Chinese science fiction, so you actually see it growing in prominence in recent years. And I think that has also been helped by the fact the growing global appetite for Chinese science fiction is also the result of the fact that it's translated into English and I think this anthology will go some way in pushing that yeah so, in fact right now um, there's a huge Chinese blockbuster film uh, The Wandry Earth which uh, got another Liu Cixin novella and that's been huge both in China because I think Chinese people want for a change to see their own countrymen saving the world you know instead of it always being a white Hol- savior yeah Hollywood or <laughs> Matt Damon or yeah <laughs> Matt Damon <laughs> yeah so did you have any favorites in this anthology oh I've got to say that I know this is supposed to be the best of what's going on right now, but a lot of it did not grab me. It's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know if it's just because, you know, a lot of it was very hard science fiction, but Mm. I found a lot of it quite either expository or delighting in very superficial conceits. Like, there's this common uh, trope of putting a very modern technology into the distant past. Yes, which you see in the snow of Jingyang. Yes, I do actually like the snow of Jingyang, which is is this, uh, I think it's set in the Song invasion, but at the same time, they have technology like the internet and cars, which, you know, um, are fire all carriages. So there's this ongoing plot to convince this mysterious scientist figure called Prince Lu that he should either open the gates to the invading Song or he should continue to resist them. And somehow all of this falls upon the head of one man called Chu Dagun, who in modern parlance would be a keyboard warrior. Like he literally just spends all day arguing on this ancient Chinese version of the internet with other people. Yeah, so in fact, speaking of this ancient Chinese version of the internet, why don't we read out an excerpt where... Wait, would you actually describe this invent this Please anachronistic invention? <laughs> 
Okay, so um, here goes. He'd placed the thousand characters into a rectangular tray, attaching every block in the back to a strand of silk thread with a spring. The thousand strands of thread were then collected into a bundle, the thickness of a wrist termed a web. Similar text trays were found all over the city, where the bundles of silk threads passed through the bottoms of the walls to a network manager's station. The end of each bundle of silk was then neatly fitted into a metal mesh by tying a small hook to the end of each thread and hanging the hooks to the mesh. These meshes lined the walls of a station, and if two text trays wanted to communicate, the manager found the two corresponding bundles and brought the metal meshes together with a twist that connected a thousand pairs of metal hooks together. The bundles were thus linked together in what Prince Lu called an internet. Once a web connection was established, the users at each end could communicate through the text trays. When one side pressed down on one of the typepieces, the little spring tugged the silk thread, causing the corresponding type to sink down on the other side. Although picking out the desired character out of a thousand densely packed blocks posed quite a strain on the operator's eyes, an experienced user could type with lightning speed. Some pedants worried that the depth and complexity of Hansi writing could not be adequately represented by such an invention. Yeah, so it's quite a quirky little Yes, a thousand <laughs> keys. I mean, <laughs> what a nightmare. <laughs> this keyboard warrior, Zhu Dagun, is essentially arrested for spreading mm. fake news on this internet. And this is so that he can be planted in the, you know, in the environs of the prince, who turns out, okay, maybe not too many spoilers, but yes, so that he can convince him to shape, to change the path of the nation. So that was one of the more light-hearted uses of the time-traveling trope. Which is popular for a reason, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yes. I think I, I think it didn't take itself too seriously, which is why I like it. Yeah. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't too earnest. It had too. the best of both genres, both history and science fiction. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, there's another one called Reflection where a woman who can predict the future actually turns out to be a woman who a woman for whom time moves in reverse. So her memory is actually the future and she forgets what happened to her in the past. I mean, she has no inkling of what happened to her in the past because it's not actually happened to her before. Then she turns out to be the reflection of someone else in the book. So that was one of the stories which I found a bit more contrived and a central conceit and then you, you try and experiment with multiple variations on it. So it didn't strike me as that arresting compared to some of the other more memorable pieces in the collection. Yeah, but it is a rare anthology where every single entry is equally strong, I think. And obviously here some are stronger than the others. Uh, much as I hate to bring it back to Liu Cixin, uh, he has story in here called Moonlight, which is pretty interesting. Um, mm. It all takes place on a single night, and this one man just receives multiple calls from his future self, telling him how to avert... Future kind of, disaster. Yes, but every time he tries to do that, then another version of his future self calls him, and it's like, no, it just got worse. Yeah. yeah so he succeeds in changing the course of humanity three times in the night without, in the end, having changed anything at all. Yeah, so even though science fiction is now being lauded in China, sort of like the way forward, very progressive mm. way of looking at things. There's a sort of futility in a lot of these stories, especially in Moonlight. Are we approaching this point where there is no turning back to the point of no return? Yes. Mm. uh, It's also almost spiritual in a way. I mean, depending on your sympathies, it's the sense of determinism, right? Whatever you do, there's some plotter who who has already charted the course of humanity and, and nothing we do will really do anything to disrupt it. Do you have any favorites? There was one I found quite... There's one story called The New Year Train by Hao Jingfang. Oh, she, um, um, who also won the Hugo, right? The Hugo Award, that's right. And there are two graphs in this story. So it's essentially about a train that brings people back to their hometowns before Chinese New Year. 
And the thing about the train is it vanishes with more than 1,500 passengers missing. What happens is that there's a kind of space-time continuum at play, and I'm just going to read out this excerpt from the story. This is easily explained. Although the train has traversed only a single day in the space-time continuum, the total length of the route it travelled in the continuum was much longer, and the biological clocks of the passengers ticked along at the usual rate. Thus, despite the fact that from our perspective it seems the train has been missing for only six hours, the passengers feel they've spent many days on the train. So it's essentially a situation where time moves differently on the train and outside the train. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an idea I found quite interesting because don't you always wish you could you know, lose yourself in some magical world where time moves at a different rate and you could spend lots of time there, but outside it's just, yeah. you've only lost a couple of seconds. Yeah, it's a very short story though. I was kind of, I think, hoping for more from, mm. from that story. I thought it started out really well with the, this official trying to explain to the reporter why the train is doing what it's doing and he's just drawing these graphs. And then the, like re- the reporter's like, this looks like a dumpling. And he draws another graph. The reporter's like, this looks like a badly made dumpling that's about to burst but um, then the passengers arrived everything was fine and then I was like I kind of wanted more from this train travelling through time trope so with a lot of these stories you feel that there's an interesting idea Mm. and that's it almost yeah Um, yeah and and some of the ideas are more memorable than others I mean a lot of these stories they just didn't leave much of an impression on me what is that uh, one story with the what has passed yes yeah Yeah, what has passed shall in kind of light appear by Bao Shu Ah, yes. So I think that is kind of the, the, it's in the center of the anthology and it's one of the longer ones, Mm. uh, sort of like a reverse times arrow in which instead of people moving backwards through time in their lives, so they continue to move forward in their lives, but political events move backwards. So you start with the building of the Bird's Nest Stadium, China Mm -hmm. become, you know, hosting the Olympics, and then you sort of move back through SARS, through Huanzhu Gege, and then through through Tiananmen. So the main character is young when it starts, and then as a teenager, he goes through Tiananmen Square, and after that, he has this uh, long-lost love who he is parted from, reunited with and parted from. And just when they're reunited again, the Cultural Revolution happens and they are parted again. And then It's a bizarre story. I mean, there were bits of it which I found somewhat touching, but ultimately, what is it? What is he actually trying to say? He, he's looking at what would happen if you experience history in the opposite direction. But it's not a straightforward opposite movement because it's kind of mixed up quite a bit. It's not linear. In a, it's not backwards in a straightforward linear way. Yeah. It mixes the events up. I mean, w- w- one thing about this story is it ends with this note from the author kind of like almost a co- not really a cop-out but a kind of disclaimer where he says his story was written as a work of entertainment and so it should not be read as some kind of political manifesto and if one must attribute a political message to it it is simply this I hope that all the historical tragedies our nation has experienced will not repeat in the future so is it a kind of parable a fable science fiction it's a bit parable like there are quite a few parable fables in this anthology yeah, especially the stories which seem a bit more simple yeah there's almost a kind of fairy tale element when you approach some of these stories it feels like you're being told a kind of a tale with some kind of moral behind it but it leaves you feeling quite lost at the end as well the twists and turns yeah so mistake. verdict in total what is your verdict broken stars I think for people who don't know much about Chinese science fiction, it might make for a pretty decent introduction, a peek into that universe, 
but I, I finished reading the anthology not feeling very strongly about it as a whole. I mean, there were some stories that left a stronger impression on me than others. But no, I mean, there wasn't really anything I... I think in summary, for people who don't know much about Chinese science fiction, it might make for a good introduction. But at the same time, it, it's not an anthology that really left a strong impression on me, even though there were some stories that were more memorable than others. Well, maybe the next anthology will up the ante even further. Yes, I think that's all we have time for today. So thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Goodbye. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcasts at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.